Today, on Onward to Victory, we uncover the story of the first Notre Dame football player who could be considered sensational, the redheaded fullback, Lewis Salmon. Ten years before a certain Knut Rockney landed on campus, it was Salmon who originally put Notre Dame on the football map from 1900 to 1903. What, you haven't heard of him? Well, believe me when I tell you, this guy did things on a football field no one had seen in program history. He could do it all. Buckle up your chin straps, football fans. This is Onward to Victory. Irish fans, we are rolling. Welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. I am your host, Alex Painter. Welcome to episode 32 of your friendly neighborhood Fighting Irish podcast. Thank you so much for electing to join me here today. Wherever it is that you are coming from, please know that I am super grateful that you are here. And again, thank you. I have yet another enthralling story to tell you. But before we jump in with two feet, don't forget to subscribe to the show through whatever platform you prefer to listen, and that will, of course, ensure that you are getting alerted to all the new episodes, such as the last one called Sing Her Glory, which detailed the meteoric rise of Notre Dame's fight song, The Victory March, from a campus favorite ragtime ditty to a nationwide sensation. Go give it a listen. I personally think it's great, and I've gotten some really good feedback about it, and it's kind of a while it's a super famous part of Notre Dame's lore, it's kind of an undertold story. Special thank you to the Onward to Victory Consensus All-American Squad, those who support the show from a financial standpoint and keep us not just on the air, but advertisement-free and ever-expanding. If you want to find out how to donate and get some complimentary show merchandise, just hang tight. So our Consensus All-Americans, the real MVPs in this joint, include the following. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, perhaps one of the most ardent supporters of the show. Thank you so much. Brad Glazer of Williamsburg, Indiana, a virtual neighbor of mine and one of the biggest Fighting Irish fans I know, and a trio of siblings in Adam, Weston, and Colton Painter. Adam and Weston hail from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Colton calls Cleveland, Ohio home. No worries, I'll gush about these folks a little bit more in the show wrap-up as well. But please consider joining these loyal sons in support of the show by visiting paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation. Or if you want to donate a set certain amount per month, visit patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. All support is greatly, greatly appreciated and 100% goes back into the show. A $15 donation will sponsor a couple episodes and get your name called out as a Consensus All-American over the air. You will also receive the latest in show merch. Currently some show-branded canned koozies and the world-famous Father William Corby coasters. All right, so on with the show. 
As I promised in the waning moments of the last episode, here we go. So over the early phases of the pandemic, I read a book written by Chet Grant called Before Rockney at Notre Dame. Essentially, the book detailed, you guessed it, the history of Notre Dame football pre-Rockney. And I can completely understand why in many folks' minds, and even in my own from time to time, that the timeline of Notre Dame football traditionally starts with Knut Rockney. I get it. But just a bit on Mr. Chet Grant here who wrote this book, just in case you're a bit uninitiated. This guy knew his Notre Dame football up, down, forwards, backwards, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Before Rockney at Notre Dame is a history that almost feels like prose, in a sense, or like literature. It actually takes a few chapters, even, to grow accustomed to Grant's somewhat flowery writing style, which, come to find out, made perfect sense. Grant, before even suiting up for the Notre Dame football team, actually covered them extensively, taking on a job as the sports editor for the South Bend Tribune when he was only 18 years old. So Grant had spent much of his youth in South Bend and had a huge affinity for Notre Dame athletics. So taking the position at the Tribune was probably a dream job for him at the time. But eventually he did enroll at Notre Dame and in 1920, he actually served as George Gipps' backup. And in 1921, he became the starting quarterback and led the Notre Dame football squad to a 10-1 record that year. But he also played forward on the Irish basketball team. And eventually, he became an assistant coach under former four horseman Elmer Layden from 1934 to 1940, coaching the running backs. And later in life, he was among the first curators of the sports collection in the Notre Dame archives. Okay, so if you're picking up what I'm putting down here, Mr. Chet Grant, growing up in large part in South Bend, covering Notre Dame uh, before he even joined the football team, and then as a member of the football team was incredibly successful, coached Notre Dame, and then eventually was the chief curator of the sports collection in the Notre Dame archives. Again, this man knew his football. And so to top it all off, when he wrote Before Rockney at Notre Dame, it was in 1978. He was 86 years old. So he had lived a Notre Dame life, and he eventually died in South Bend at age 93 in 1985. So after finishing his book, I realized that there are so many of these early players, pre-Rockney, that deserve an episode. And if this one is roundly enjoyed, I may do another one like this next, or even make it part of a semi-ongoing series. But anyway, this era of Notre Dame football is simply fascinating. So Chet Grant when reflecting on his Notre Dame football life, because that is the only way we can describe it, remembers the following when he was just a youngster. Quote, When I was 10, for me the symbol of Notre Dame, the institution, was not the golden dome or the golden figure of the mother of God surmounting it. It was a living personality, a red-headed fullback. My image of Rad Salmon as a Notre Dame man, is my bond with the school, not my years at Notre Dame on the field and in the classroom. It is the Notre Dame that Red Salmon represented and still represents in my memory, for which I carry an affection, 
transcending an old man's discomfort in the face of change, end quote. So without further ado, I give you The Pigskin Magician, The Forgotten Lore of Lewis Red Salmon, right after this. Lewis Salmon was born in Syracuse, New York on June 10, 1880, to parents Martin and Johanna Salmon. And right out of the gate, this is a man already after my own heart. So I hail from a large Catholic family. It's come up time and time again, but I'm the second oldest of 10 children, and all 10 were actually born in a 15-year span. Not too shabby. Lewis hailed from a large Catholic family as well with 10 children, though he was the seventh of 10. And the 10 Salmon children were born in a 21-year span from 1869 to 1890. So just a bit of backstory here, both Lewis's mother and father were born in Ireland, so they were Irish immigrants. His father, Martin, had actually fought in the American Civil War. In fact, according to Martin's obituary, he was at Fort Sumter in South Carolina in 18... 61, April of 1861, helping build the fortifications around the fort until two days before the Confederate artillery fired on the stronghold, thus beginning the American Civil War. Martin's unit was folded into the 51st New York Infantry, who primarily fought in the Eastern Theater of the Civil War. In 1873, Martin joined the Syracuse Police Force, where he eventually made sergeant. So when Lewis was a youngster, he attended the Christian Brothers Academy, a small private Catholic school just outside of his hometown of Syracuse in DeWitt, New York. And for what it's worth, the academy is still open today, and Irish defensive end Walt Patulski, who was the last Notre Dame player to be drafted number one overall in the NFL draft, also attended Christian Brothers, albeit he graduated in 1968. Lewis had a brilliant flume of red hair atop his head, so, alas, he quickly garnered the nickname Red. After graduating from Christian Brothers, it would seem as though, according to Salmon's obituary, that he had a stopover at Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland. It can be somewhat reasonably deduced that he may have been considering the priesthood as Mount St. Mary's contains one of the largest Catholic seminaries in the entire United States. Either way, he may have changed course literally, which sent him to yet another Catholic institution, the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, where he decided instead to study civil engineering. Now, he arrived on campus in the fall of 1900, exactly 120 years ago this year. And it's always a nice reminder to remember that Notre Dame at this time was neither an academic powerhouse nor an athletic juggernaut, as it is known today. The college president at the time was Father Andrew Morrissey, who I don't believe we have mentioned once on this show, so very cool. But it was actually Morrissey's presidency which oversaw the construction of the grotto, in 1896, 
And Morrissey Residence Hall is named for the former university president and still stands to this day. And so just to set the stage a bit more as far as general landscape, though college football had been around in a somewhat sophisticated fashion on some college campuses, mostly Ivy League schools, since the 1870s, the sport was certainly still very new in the American sporting conscience. Baseball was on the come up at this time, but horse racing and boxing still tended to dominate the American sporting conscience, as mentioned, at the turn of the 20th century. Yes, football did have its star players, but as IrishLegends.com once penned, players around this time played in, quote, in an age when newspapers did not devote page after page to sporting news, when football games and church socials drew about the same number of people, end quote. So Red, as you might guess, was a prep football star at Christian Brothers, and he immediately went out for the football team. Notre Dame had just started having football on campus just 13 years earlier, and the program had a somewhat official record of 30 wins, 16 losses, and two ties in their history, good for a 64% winning percentage at the time. While this wasn't too bad on the surface, Notre Dame would traditionally score wins over smaller schools, such as DePaul or Albion, or even the Chicago Dental Infirmary, while losing to larger schools such as Michigan, Indiana, and Purdue far more times than not. Unfortunately, individual statistics were not widely available for my research during the 1900 season when Red was a member of the team that registered a 6-3-1 record, while outscoring their opponents 261-73. Those three losses of note were against Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Salmon's efforts in particular against Michigan, where he was reputedly the only player to continually and successfully tackle Wolverine's halfback Willie Heston, garnered individual acclaim. Red, though he was very quiet and reserved, something that he would prove to be his entire life, was immensely popular around campus. In part because his clear athletic prowess, which we will spend plenty of time discussing. But from a looks standpoint, even with a 2020 lens, Red cuts a very dashing figure. A classmate of Red's named Cornelius Haggerty said that, quote, Red's cheeks were so smooth, the color so solid, that his skin almost appeared translucent. The blue of his eyes were startling, end quote. Chet Grant himself likened Red's look to that of movie star Kirk Douglas. Red played football with his head unprotected, which is a way of saying he wore no helmet, and at this time, it is of note, too, that moleskin helmets, this is before they were made of leather, were optional. So if you can imagine the image of a young football player running sideline to sideline with his brilliant, long red hair blowing in the breeze, it is quite an image. But heading into the 1901 season, Red was handed the starting fullback job. He also played linebacker, kicker, and punter. According to Chet Grant, he was a, quote, first-rate blocker. So let's face it, Red did everything. 
And despite standing only five foot nine inches and tipping the scales at less than 170 pounds, Red quickly gained the reputation as both a slasher and a smasher, which is a colorful way of saying that well, if he couldn't run around you, he had little to no qualms about just running right over you. His physical abilities were incredibly impressive given his size. Now, some modern accounts list him at six foot three and over 230 pounds, but this is simply not true. That would have been a massive football player at that time, which Red was not. He was an incredibly average sized man. And if one were to look at team photographs, that would become very quickly apparent. So almost to set the record straight in a sense, he was not a large person, but I came across multiple accounts that had him much larger. In some cases, yes, yeah, six inches and 60 pounds heavier than he actually was. So I only feel like I need to set the record straight because he was able to, he was able to accomplish so much on a gridiron Again, being a very average-sized person. So in 1901, Notre Dame, for the first time in school history, was named Indiana State Champion, with a 12-6 win over Purdue and an 18-5 win over Indiana University. So it is important to note that at this time, touchdowns were worth five points and not six. And for his part, Red single-handedly put both the Boilermakers and the Hoosiers on ice during the November 9th and 16th, 1901 games. So against Purdue, Red scored a touchdown and kicked two extra points in the 12-6 win. So yes, if you're doing math at home, he accounted for seven of the 12 points. So the next weekend against Indiana, Red scored two more touchdowns, including an electrifying 55-yard run. For good measure, he kicked three extra points and actually had a punt that sailed more than 60 yards. And referring to the school newspaper, The Scholastic, almost every single game, Red is lauded not just for his running ability, but also his kicking and punting ability. Routinely sending spiraling punts 50, 60, and at least once 70 yards down the field. Astonishing. According to the 1901 football review from the school newspaper, Red's work was actually, quote, being closely watched by the critics who are unanimous in declaring him one of the best fullbacks in the West, end quote. So the team in 1901 notched an 8-1-1 record with their only loss being a 2-0 defeat at the hands of Northwestern. And for argument's sake, the 1901 Indiana State Championship was truly the first significant team honor in program history. So Salmon ended the 1901 season, a runaway success for his Notre Dame squad. Between touchdowns, drop kicks, and extra points, he scored 53 points, and he was unanimously selected as team captain for the 1902 season. So the 1902 edition of Notre Dame, led on the field by an actual Irishman in Red Salmon, again claimed a share 
of the Indiana State Championship. They defeated Indiana University in Bloomington, which snapped a 23-game home winning streak for the Hoosiers. Notre Dame scored two touchdowns in the 12-5 victory. Both scored, you guessed it, on red salmon runs. Notre Dame and Purdue tied in the final game of the season 6-6. So the teams split the state title. The Irish registered a 6-2-1 record in 1902. And after scoring 53 points in 1901, Red scored 77 in 1902. And I have to just mention this once again. Just do keep in mind that touchdowns were only worth five points. Ahead of the 1903 season, Red's senior year, he was once again elected captain of the team. And he was absolutely, utterly sensational. So would you believe me if I told you that the Irish did not yield a point for an entire season? Well, that was the 1903 season. Under the tutelage of Captain Salmon, Notre Dame outscored their opponents 291 to 0 and ran their record to 8 0 and 1. The 0 to 0 tie was against rival Northwestern. So that defense that yielded exactly 0 points that year was of course spearheaded by the linebacker who had just as high of a propensity and a nose for the football on defense as he did for breaking off long runs on offense. Yes, none other than Red Salmon. So the main knock against Notre Dame that year was their scheduling rigor, which of course the team could not necessarily help, but Indiana and Purdue had both dropped off the schedule. But still, what a feat for the young Notre Dame squad. And at the fullback position, Red scored 15 touchdowns. He also kicked 40 extra points which gave him 105 points on the 1903 season. According to a 1965 article from the South Bend Tribune, Red scored an astonishing 235 career points. So, in an effort to provide a bit more context, this gentleman, who I guarantee most haven't heard of, scored more points in a career than anyone in Notre Dame football history had and, and at that point, and then more than anyone would, until Irish legend Alan Pinkett passed him over 80 years later. His 36 career touchdowns was also a program standard until Pinkett broke it again in 1984, over eight decades later. So for his incredible efforts, Red was named to an honor that no other Notre Dame football player had been up to that point. College football luminary Walter Camp, who was a player, coach, and became an early sports writer, selected an All-American squad each year. Now each season, seemingly since the list had began circulating, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Penn, 
and Cornell typically dominated the selections each year. Even as fielding Yost's Michigan teams were having dominant seasons, they would nary get a mention. So truthfully, there seemed like there was a bit of a bias stacked up against what were called Western Conference teams. But, as Grant relays, quote, at a time when it was a red-letter event for a Western Conference or Michigan star to breach the Ivy Walls, a bit of a nod to the fact that the Ivy League schools were among the few schools being considered, Red Salmon of tiny Notre Dame made the third team, end quote. So with the selection, Notre Dame had their first official All-American. Now, not quite a full-blown misnomer is the assertion that George Gipp was the program's first All-American. So he was actually the program's first Walter Camp first team All-American, which is, of course, a huge deal. But in 1903, 17 years before Gipp was named to the first team, it was seismic to have a Notre Dame player mentioned, even on the third team. So Notre Dame's football squad with red on the team boasted a four-year record of 28 wins, six losses, and four ties. Good for a nearly 79% winning percentage. And friends, I tell you this, I did a very deep dive going game by game in the school newspaper, and I can tell you that in every single game red played in, okay, Let's say 95% of the games that Red played in, again, with nearly 80% of those being wins for Notre Dame, he was the unequivocal star. And again, this is a fact that is corroborated often by the school newspaper and the football review. Red graduated from Notre Dame magna cum laude with a degree in civil engineering in 1905. He did stay with the program the previous fall in 1904 and coached the football team. Team struggled to a 5-4 finish in a season where they clearly missed their head coach's efforts on the gridiron. But however, after graduating in 1905, Red went back to New York to begin his career as an engineer. Though he was slated to begin work soon, he decided to schedule a two-week vacation in Massillon, Ohio. Again, before beginning his job. But while there, he picked up a two-week gig playing three professional football games with the local Massillon Club. According to Grant, the still-electrifying salmon earned $1,500 in two weeks. Then he quietly returned to New York and began his career. So if you can believe this, Notre Dame's biggest football star only returned to campus twice in six decades. Like another show favorite, also nicknamed Red in Emil Red Sitko, Salmon was incredibly humble, and he didn't really want to, the fuss kicked up about him. Grant later said that, quote, I think his reluctance stemmed from sincere diffidence true humility, end quote. The first time that Salmon returned to campus was homecoming in 1920, 
when the Gipper himself was lining up in the Notre Dame backfield. Quote, the students loved him, Grant wrote, and gave him a mass send-off on the train bound east, end quote. After returning once more in the 1930s, Salmon never came back to his alma mater. In 1959, when Grant was talking to an old buddy named Harley Kirby, who also happened to be a teammate of Salmon, Grant asked Kirby if he thought the red-headed fullback, Grant's childhood hero, was still the best in the history of Notre Dame. Kirby affirmed, stating that, quote, Salmon could have breached a literal brick wall. Though he did concede ever so slightly, of course, if the wall did stand firm by remote chance, a couple of us were always on hand, prepared to lift him by the belt and throw him over the top, end quote. Red Salmon quietly lived out the rest of his days in New York as perhaps the most unassuming former college football star ever. Okay, maybe not ever, but man, he certainly shied from any spotlight. On September 27, 1965, Lewis Salmon died of a heart attack in his native New York at age 85. Six years after his death, he was inducted in the College Football Hall of Fame, class of 1971. He is one of 46 Notre Dame inductees, which, yes, is the most of any college. How about one final assessment from irishlegends.com? Quote, Best of all, this pigskin magician never marred his football career with a personal agent, contractual agent, press agent, or theatrical agent. He had no private lawyer, accountant, secretary, valet, answering service, or mail drop. No one offered Red Salmon big money to brush, spray, comb, shave, or scrub with various cosmetics. Nor did he model pantyhose, lip balm, or department store leisure suits. He never worried about the Heisman Trophy, the Pro Draft, Bowl Games, or the NCAA, because they did not exist. Red Salmon played the game because it was fun. This makes him our hero forever. End quote. We will be right back. Well, I'll tell you this much. I really do try to put as much energy and effort as time will allow into writing these things with respect to the fact that, of course, this is not my job. Uh, I've got a uh, completely other full-time job. But honestly, sometimes I feel better about some of these episodes than others. But I think this one, the story of Red Salmon, is going to be roundly enjoyed. Talk about a totally undertold story in the annals of Notre Dame football history. So let's make this guy famous. If you enjoyed it, please share it with anyone who you think would be interested. Help this show grow. 
Speaking of growing, thank you to all of you here. Uh, for the first time in show history, we crossed over the 400 listen mark for a single month in September of 2020. After a few months of knocking on the 400 door, we finally pulled it off. So thank you. That is a, a huge mark, I feel. And I always use it uh, as a bit of context. I always tell the story of episode one, uh, Heisman at Iwo Jima, which is the first episode the show released. And it is the, still the most popular one as far as listens. But I plugged away for an entire month back in June of 2019. I got 33 listens for that in the first month. And I was so immensely proud of that. So to cross over the 400 listen mark is astonishing to me. So thank you so much. And if you dig the show, you can find me on Apple Podcasts. If you have that iPhone, just click that purple podcast icon. I'm also on Spotify, CastBox, as well as Podbean. The main site is onwardtovictory.podbean.com. So please like, subscribe, leave comments, do whatever you got to do. I just want to make sure that you are being alerted to all the new episodes. So over on the Facebook page, we just held a very successful contest here recently. So thank you to everyone who participated. Uh, it was a good bit of fun. And the contest kind of revolved around just three really vague questions and just really wanted to have as many people participate as possible, all related to Notre Dame, of course. And the prizes, you know, we did a drawing at the end. The prizes were pretty awesome too. But I would be remiss not to mention that the prizes were funded by the generosity of the Onward to Victory Consensus All-Americans. So another contest is coming down the pike here soon, as well as a formal tribute series to George Gipp as we celebrate the centennial of his amazing 1920 campaign and untimely death. So that will be on Facebook. So if you're not on the Facebook page, jump over and like it. I'll give you the link here in a second. But if you'd like to name yourself to the Onward to Victory Consensus All-American list, and join loyal sons Brad, Michael, Adam, Weston, or Colton, and become a loyal son or daughter, so to speak, yourself, you can do so very simply. A $15 donation to the show will sponsor an episode and get your name called out as a Consensus All-American over the air. You will also receive the latest show swag. Again, currently some can koozies, show branded can koozies, and the world-famous Father William Corby coasters. Just trying to take care of those beverages this football season. You can donate at paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation, or if you want to donate a certain amount per month, please visit patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. I hope you all know that any support is greatly appreciated. And again, 100% goes back into the show. So please interact with the show on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash onward to victory. Please, anyone. Feel free to make your voice heard on that platform. And something that is really exciting since the season started is the advent of the initiative I am calling Onward to Victory TV, which features game recaps, statistics, analysis, all in the video form on the Facebook page. Uh, though I think and know that being a Notre Dame fan means oftentimes that you're in touch with Notre Dame history, and I think that that is very central to the fandom. I, like most of you, I'm sure, are also a fervent supporter of the current edition of the Irish, and that is mostly what the videos are dealing with. So I've done some video in the past, but I'm trying to do it much more consistently as well as formatted. So just another reason that if you are of the Facebook persuasion to give the page a like and follow. 
As always, you can feel free to send the show a good old-fashioned email at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com. If you send the show an email, I will read. If you send the show a message, I will read it, particularly when it's like if it kind of matches up with an appropriate episode. So please correspond with the show as, as much as you'd like. As always, thank you to Joseph Rakish, who allows the song to use his song, Knut Rockney, as our theme song. You can find the song on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Support Joseph, give it a spin, add it to your playlist. All right, well, again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was amazing to put together and amazingly enlightening. I will be honest, it was, I learned probably as much this episode as I have any other episode. Uh, so, sincerely, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, don't hesitate to let me know. I always appreciate hearing from you. But I reckon it is time for me to sign off. So this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. Irish.